The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hi, regular listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, may I point you towards another? It's hosted by one of our regular contributors, The Telegraph's China correspondent, Sophia Yan. In How to Become a Dictator, Sophia Yan and Venetia Rainey examine the life, politics, and future of the Chinese president, Xi Jinping. It's a fantastic listen, so I'd hugely recommend it to you. Thanks for listening. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we speak to Anna Vertsan, a Kyiv native and previous guest on the podcast, about how people in the city are living through the blackouts caused by Russian drone and missile strikes. And we discuss the news and historical context that Russian troops have stolen the bones of the 18th century prince, Grigory Potemkin. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Ukraine can win, Ukraine must win, and Ukraine will win. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 28th of October, day 247. And today, I'm joined by assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, senior reporter and history correspondent Daniel Capuro, and our guest, Anna Vertsan, who's calling us live from Kyiv. I started by asking Francis for the latest news from Ukraine. We mentioned yesterday that we were expecting a speech from Vladimir Putin. That has now been delivered, and I will turn to that later in today's episode. But before that, I will start with news from the front lines. According to the UK Ministry of Defence, severely depleted Russian army companies in the Herzon sector have been fighting with between six and eight men each when they should be formed of around 100 soldiers. In its daily update, the MOD said, quote, in the last six weeks, there has been a clear move from Russian ground forces to transition to a long term defensive posture on most areas of the front line in Ukraine. This is likely due to a more realistic assessment that the severely undermanned, poorly trained force in Ukraine is currently only capable of defence operations. That's very interesting indeed and what we've expected and discussed in the podcast in recent times. This question, particularly around the uh, number of Russian soldiers in these units is also, I think, very interesting, as we've spoken about at length in, in, in earlier episodes. Really, when one looks at the Russian army in its current state, its traditional thing that it can call on throughout history is numbers, is the number of men. And we've already talked at length about the partial mobilisation, which will see more men coming, although that will take many, many months. And I think the effect of that will be negligible. But nonetheless, Without these overwhelming numbers, which in, the, in its past it's been able to utilise successfully for, for offensive operations, what does Russia really have? It hasn't got the technical expertise. It hasn't got the effective commanders. So really, it's very, very handicapped indeed. And what we're seeing after many months now of successful Ukrainian counterattacks, counteroffensive, is, is a very, very severely depleted Russian army. Thanks, Francis. So there's also been some news from uh, the US and NATO. Can you talk us through it? What does it mean? We understand that the US will bring forward the delivery of dozens of highly accurate guided tactical nuclear weapons to Europe amid the escalating tensions with Moscow. As I say, I'll talk about Putin's speech later, which I think plays into this. So these new thermonuclear bombs are 
are dialer yield devices, which basically means that uh, their payload can be can be changed. They're expected to be sent to NATO bases within weeks. Now, before people start panicking, hearing this and thinking this is something that's a huge escalation, uh, it's not. Uh, this is something that actually. Uh, it w- was already um, scheduled, but it's clearly designed to to uh, reassure NATO allies amid the the current uh, saber rattling from Russia. These replacements will begin in in December. It's basically upgrading what's already there, rather than it being additional deployments. Currently, the US has about 100 of these, I think, stored in bases in European countries, including Germany and Italy. So uh, I just wanted to draw attention to that because no doubt the um, Kremlin's propaganda will be. But uh, nonetheless, I think uh, we should perhaps see this idea of it being something that's a, a huge development as, as, with, with caution. Thanks, Francis. Just maybe one more thing before we turn to Anna. Um, there's been another update um, from from a slightly different theatre of potential conflict, uh, that's space. Uh, Can you tell us what's happened here? As we've touched on in the past, of course, Russia has caused lots of disputes, disagreements in this space in recent months, pulling out of the International Space Station, for instance. And uh, there's now been an additional threat that uh, Russia could strike Western satellites aiding Ukraine Um, which is drawing attention to a rather untested area of international law. And it's raising concerns amongst space lawyers who who, who knew there was such a thing as a space lawyer, but there is, and industry executives about the safety of objects in orbit. We've spoken, of course, at length in the past around about Elon Musk's use of uh, satellites to provide internet to uh, the front lines in Ukraine. And I think that this should be seen in this context that the the war is 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 in many ways uh, one that is being fought in so many different areas technological um, military of course uh, the internet but space is now also one that's being considered highly relevant to all of this so uh it hasn't happened i say no country has ever carried out a missile strike against the enemy's satellite such an act of course during a war in ukraine would sharply escalate things i think it's fair to say but nonetheless the fact that russia are talking about this i is i thought worthy of note just as an example of of the way in which this war has ramifications in areas that perhaps we haven't even considered before now this actually i think leads us on quite neatly to our next segment so today uh, ukrainian air force spokesman yuri inat said that ukraine says or believes it's shot down more than 300 iranian shahed 136 uh, drones so far these are the drones the new drones delivered we think by iran in the over the past couple of weeks that have been causing such havoc in the energy infrastructure of ukraine because of course even though the ukrainians have shot down more than 300 quite a few are still getting through and we know that uh, blackouts have been rolling across the country and ukrainians are having to adapt and, and live through that. Um, Anna Vertsen is a friend um, of the podcast and a good friend as well. Anna, if you remember her from previous podcasts, um, showed me around Kiev and we did a lot of reporting together from from the centre there. So thank you very much for that, Anna. It's great to have you back on. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what life is like now in Kiev with with these blackouts? How has your day been? How are you living through it? Yeah, those uh, last couple of weeks, I should say, was quite challenging um, because of our energy um, infrastructure is severely damaged. So for now, uh, I think about 30% of energy infrastructure is damaged. Uh, we have, uh, we struggle with the uh, everyday blackouts. So what does it mean is um, 
we are, don't have electricity in our homes, in the streets, in the stores. It's quite hard to live in a big city without electricity, uh, as you understand. It's uh, even harder for those people who live in apartment blocks, fully electrified, without, uh, without gas supplies. We are doing our best. We are trying to deal with it. We are warming up, warming our houses. Um, somebody even buying solar panels, gas panels, and to, to heat up, to warm up the house. We continue our everyday life. Just uh, just another challenge. This is how our, our day is looking. Just blackout, a lot of work, then another blackout for about 4 to up to 10 or even 14 hours a day, twice a day. And uh, it's hard. It's hard, especially now when it's... Um, autumn and it's getting colder especially at night and you basically can't you can't warm up and what are people doing in your block and around the place in Kiev to support each other i'm quite a lucky one because i'm living in an old block and uh, i have a gas uh, i have a gas supply i have a gas stove for example it's uh, easier for me to have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee or just make a meal for my for myself and uh, um, not not all my friends are, are so lucky and they uh, have to cook outside or with uh, portable touristic gas stoves um, challenging but yeah we support each other uh, morally we try to talk more just to uh, openly and to um, manage this together as a community um, because it's our common problem and uh, everyone is in the same position. Lots of my friends, for example, they ask for help from psychologists, but nonetheless, we, we totally understand that we are mourning in the, in the big city, but uh, meanwhile, our men and women prote- protecting us from trenches and trenches in cold nights and it's much harder for them than for us. Does this feel different to your experiences in February and March when Russian troops were on the outskirts of the city? Um, and do you, do you think th- th- these attacks on infrastructure, I mean, I, I imagine the answer is no, right? But like, do you think these are affecting morale at all or, or actually just doing even more to persuade Ukrainians that resistance and fighting is the only option? It's a bit different, yeah, of course, because in February and in early, especially early March, we were afraid, we were frustrated, we didn't know what to do. Lots of people left their homes behind, their fleet, the country, yeah, and we had no plan to do each each of us, and this is part of our mental health, right? Stability and a chance to um, plan at least a week, and we didn't have that, so it was very hard. And now we are stronger, we are angry, we, we are not afraid at all, even children, by the way, and we are angry and we have a plan. We are just adopting like in like lightning. Uh, we are strong, we are not afraid. It's challenging, yes. Annoying, oh yes. Can I ask, sometimes these blackouts are are planned, you know, the the state tells you certain hours when the the electricity will be turned off, and sometimes that goes on, and sometimes it's unplanned. Could you talk us through, as citizens, sort of what you receive from the state, 
um, in, in terms of guidance? You know, it's uh, quite a funny part and we make fun of it and we make uh, a lot of memes about it uh, because it should be planned and we kind of have a, a schedule and we can go to our energy company's website and check uh, the schedule, uh, find your street, your apartment, uh, basically your house, and uh, check when uh, the uh, blackout is planned. But <laughs> it never goes according to the plan, like never. <laughs> it's jokes, by the way, help us to manage through this, um, through this part of our day. Well, you mentioned how people are working through this. I, I wondered if you give us a sense of how these blackouts are impacting you know, your working day and your teams. How have you had to adapt around this? I'm just a usual office worker. So uh, my work depends on the computer and on electricity, basically. And uh, for people like me, you have to have your computer and your batteries all charge and you have to uh, make sure it's always charged so you have uh, enough battery life to for, for at least for a couple of hours to find another another place with electricity to work or just to have this time to to work from home i'm for example connecting my phone to my computer to get internet on my computer from my phone <laughs> and uh, luckily i have a uh, good mobile internet and i can go on and work if, if the electricity is out in the evening what do people do for entertainment how do you sort of keep yourself occupied if, if all the lights are out and you, you know you can't you, you can't get electricity through to television or computer or, or anything like that oh uh, we have candles we have led lights some of us even have uh, as i told you before backup generators so People tend to play board games, read books, um, go for a walk, or even uh, it's a good chance to have a proper sleep. I've talked to my uh, to my friends, and we uh, cherish this uh, mutual mental sport. And uh, we, you you've asked about winter and how we are going to deal with the uh, winter. And you know, a couple of my friends told me that girls. Uh, especially uh, told me that they are uh, thinking about cutting their hair short just to save the energy in winter, not to use uh, electric fans. Also, I know that some of uh, some of my friends and their friends with kids, um, they uh, put their kids to sleep in sleeping bags, in touristic sleeping bags. How do you how do you go about meal times if if you don't know when? I mean, you, you said you have a gas stove, so you've got an advantage here, I, I imagine. But I mean, do you know from your friends and people in the block has this? How has this changed what what they're eating and, and how they're preparing food? I'm, I'm quite curious. About we that. have an advantage of big city, so we have delivery. <laughs> first of all, um, open working cafes. Uh, cafes still keep going, keep working even without electricity, as much as possible. And uh, some people, as I told you, are thinking about uh, getting their barbecue outside uh, and just have meal uh, in a, uh, in the street, basically. <laughs> so yeah, some some people just buying portable gas stoves just to have a chance to warm up. Well, thank you very much, Anna, for for coming on and telling us about your life in the blackouts. Francis and Dan, do you have any questions for Anna after everything you've heard? I have one, if that's all right. Uh, hi, Anne, and lovely to hear your voice again on the podcast. Um, my question is just, uh, I suppose, a general one, really, which is how 
informed do you feel about what's going on in the rest of the country? I'm just interested in what the information channels are for you. I mean, I know that there's obviously Zelensky giving a speech every evening, which I imagine you'll be following in some form. But do do you feel connected to what's going on in the front lines and in those regions in the south and in the east? Or does it feel very much like Kiev is its own entity at the moment? Oh yeah, uh, we have a lot of information, open information, open sources, um, open media and uh, independent media. They're working a lot. They uh, uh, tend to um, uh, get to us, to listeners, uh, as much information as possible. So lots of interviews with um, uh, with prisoners of former prisoners of war, for example, general staff from the army, from the with uh, people from liberated territories. So um, we have a lot of information, maybe uh, too much sometimes, but um, a lot of sources, you can choose the source. So can, if you asking also about kind of freedom of speech, uh, yeah, it's totally free. And we criticize our government a lot. This is, I think, our... Um, <laughs> this is all about us. Thank you. If I could just come back on that. What criticisms do people make of the government? Oh, for example, about the uh, blackout schedules, definitely. <laughs> so uh, why uh, why it's not so um, fair to uh, sit without electricity, for example, for 10 hours, like it was, and uh, instead of four hours, hours uh, according to schedule. So... Yeah, some some decisions, you know, I think like everywhere um, in free world, of course. The government, uh, the Ukrainian government, I saw warned, um, I think it was this week, um, it sort of asked refugees not to come home this year to wait until the spring, partly because of these issues with electricity and, and stuff like that. Have you, have a lot of people come back? Have you seen people come back anyway? Or is it still the case that when you're out and about, there's you've got loads of friends that are still abroad that, that are missing that you don't see in, in the city anymore? Lots of people, the major amount of people uh, came back uh, in spring, so in uh, May and in June, in, during the summer. And I don't see the tendency of leaving, of fleeing the country again. So, um, as I know, it was only one uh, one person who told this on media. And, uh, you know, uh, she had a lot of critics after that, a a lot. <laughs> so, um, I think it's more like her personal opinion, um, but it's um, from my side. And uh, I don't see people uh, thinking about fleeing. Thank you very much, Anna. It's really, really great to hear you, hear you again. Uh, thank you so much for sharing some of your experiences with us. Do stay around. Um, we're going to go to Daniel Gapuro now, senior reporter here and history correspondent. This is a, a story that Natalia Vasilyeva, a Russia correspondent, mentioned yesterday that we believe that Russian troops have stolen the body of Grigory Potemkin, the 18th century prince. Uh, this is in Kherson. Could you tell us what, what's happened? Yeah, of course. So in terms of what's happened, a little bit unclear, but it seems to be, I mean, this, the historian um, Simon Sieber Montefiore sort of raised the alarm. It seems to be that um, a special unit of, of Russians, of, of Russian officials, uh, went to occupied Kherson, entered the uh, St. Catherine's Cathedral, I believe it is, where Potemkin was buried and have... Uh, taken his uh, his remains, his bones, um, and taken them away for what they say is safe uh, storage. Um, they say it's not because they're expecting uh, a Ukrainian attack, but because 
there's a risk of artillery strikes now that's coming from the russians so so you know take it with with probably a, a large pinch of salt but that's that's the argument they've made now we've seen russian efforts to um suppress ukrainian culture to loot museums the uh, the ukrainian government uh this month i think put the figure at just under 40 museums where they said that um items had been had been taken and looted and and, and taken to russia um and then you also have museums and galleries that have been destroyed so you've got this broader context of of the kind of the suppression of of ukrainian culture the denial of its existence as a separate identity as a separate culture with potemkin it's possibly something slightly different going on and he is i think a fascinating figure that that really kind of gets into the the history of, of Russian colonialism in this area, that, that you know, in modern-day Ukraine, um, but also the kind of slightly demented uh, reading of history that uh, that Putin has and, and you know that he uses to back up his invasion. So, for those who don't know, Potemkin was um, a favorite of the of the Tsarina uh, Catherine the Great, um, a lover at one point. He did lots of things under her, very important official. But his sort of his his leading impact, his his lasting impact and legacy in in the Russian-speaking uh, world was. Um, the annexation of Crimea and the wider areas around it, so sort of modern-day Kherson and, and Zaporizhia. From about the 12th century onwards, that area of the world was known as the Crimean Khanate. It was a Muslim, um, mostly Turkic uh, state. Um, it was sort of a vassal of the Ottomans, but, but, but roughly independent. Um, it was the first to sort of break away from the Ottoman Empire, really. You know, as, as sort of readers of history will know, the Russians and the Ottomans were longtime rivals and, and fought many battles, many wars. Potemkin was interesting because he was obsessed with this um, this idea of the Greek project. So those who know about Russian history will know this concept of the Third Rome. So originally you had Rome as the centre of the Christian world. Then you had uh, Constantinople, the capital of the, the Byzantine Empire. And after that fell to the Ottomans, the Russian Empire tried to claim that Moscow had become the third Rome, that um, this is where, you know, the origins of some of the sort of early pan-Slavism, that, that Moscow was the centre of the of the Greek Orthodox world, that anyone who was uh, Eastern Orthodox uh, was under the protection of, of Moscow, but also owed the patriarch their loyalty. And uh, lots and lots of uh, Russian elites were obsessed with this idea of regaining Constantinople. Catherine the Great kind of hoped to put it under the, the um, rule of her, her grandson, uh, Constantine. Potemkin was a big promoter of this, and he convinced, he convinced Catherine the Great to annex Crimea, which was already, to all intents and purposes, a, a, a Russian vassal state by the late 18th century because, because of the sort of series of wars with the crumbling Ottoman Empire. So they annexed it. He helped create what became known as Novorossiya, which listeners will be familiar with as this kind of concept that, that um, Russian imperialists today, that Putin has, of the southern, southern half of Ukraine somehow being Russian. Uh, he founded cities like Kherson, um, Sevastopol, Simferopol. Um, but what's interesting about it is it really gets to this, this kind of Russian obsession with, with southern Ukraine and, and, and with Crimea specifically. Um, so, so the importance of Crimea, as the listeners probably heard before, is is that um, the Kievan Rus, which is not Ukraine, is not Russia. It's a it's a millennia old state. The Kievan Rus uh, was Christianized in the um, 10th century, and the kind of the symbolic moment where this happens is the conversion of Vladimir the Great, which happens in Crimea. So, so Crimea has always had that importance, that sort of religious symbolic importance to Orthodox uh, Christians in the East. Um, and it's part of why Russia has this obsession with it. But whereas um, Orthodox Christians from from all over sort of Eastern Europe and and Asia and Asia Minor would would um, unite behind that and see that as a as a Slavic moment, as a moment of Christianization, 
Putin and, and Russian imperialists see it as a Russian moment, a moment, you know, where Russia came to Christianity and kind of the beginnings, you know, the early start of this sort of third Rome idea. Um, so Potemkin is kind of fascinating because he's he's part of that. And so this idea that the Russians have taken him, that they've taken his remains, that perhaps they'll somehow end up, you know, uh, Montefiore is speculating that there'll be some grand ceremony in, in Moscow. Maybe he'll be interred there and he'll be held up again as, as a national hero really kind of gets to this um, this obsession that uh, that Putin has with Crimea and the idea of it being being Russian, um, which denies not only 400 years of, of uh, Muslim uh, Tatar history, but then also uh, denies what really happened in the 10th century. Francis, I know you want to come in on this as well. Yes, uh, it's really interesting hearing Daniel's insights on this. I just wanted to add a, a more uh, modern uh, take on the significance of Potemkin because he is one of those figures, to Daniel's point, that of course, is in many ways the greatest minister of the Romanov dynasty and the Tsarist era in Russia. But he's also a figure that has symbolic resonance in the Soviet era, era too. So the battleship Potemkin was named in his honour. That's a very, very famous ship in Russia, um, famous for its involvement in the Russian Revolution of 1905 um, and its subsequent dramatisation by Sergei Eisenstein, very famous Soviet filmmaker. The film is called Battleship Potemkin. And so I think it's just worth saying that there is a, a resonance that is not just purely Tsarist, that this name, this symbolic role ha- transcends uh, the Tsarist era into the Soviet one. And I think it's just another example, really, of how Putin takes, picks and chooses from history whatever is useful for his project. He is not a red czar. He is his own entity and he will look at history through its own, through whatever means he can benefit from it. I mean, we've already talked at length about how he spoke about Peter the Great uh, in the past. He, of course, has spoken about former communist leaders. He's tried to, in many ways, repatriate Stalin through manipulating history books in classrooms. And, and now we're seeing Potemkin used potentially as some kind of ideological weapon. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with, with everything that Francis has said there. Uh, and I think the other important thing to discuss while, while we're talking about um, Potemkin and, and Crimea and, and what was there before is obviously the role of the, the Crimean uh, Tatars. So um, in many ways, what you have there is, is the sort of um, forgotten uh, one of, because one of, there are more than one, one of the forgotten genocides of, of this part of the world. Um, so the Tatars, um, right through the sort of into the um, into the 19th century, made up about 80 percent of the of the local population in Crimea. Crimea was kind of this fascinating place throughout um, the early modern period. Um, you had uh, Venetian colonies there. If you go back to the ancient world, you had Greek colonies. Um, the Genoese sort of stepped in later on. Um, you had Greek populations there. Um, and and um, for much of that time, they were sort of concentrated on the coast uh, and inland and on the steppes. You had various um, sort of nomadic peoples. But but by the 18th century, really, the dominant population, they'd sort of come together as as um, as a Muslim people were the Tatars. And, and they were this this independent kingdom. And really, after that, their their history becomes pretty, pretty tragic. So so for a long time, they were sort of a big pain, really, for for Moscow, but also for the sort of Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, which which ruled what is now Western Ukraine at the time. Um, and so even beyond a lot of the um, the other uh, minorities that were persecuted um, by the Russian Empire and later by the Soviet Union, by Stalin, the Tatars really were singled out for really particularly bad treatment. Um, so there was the deportation under Stalin. Um, I mean, the, the genocide itself probably started in the 1860s under Alexander II, but it really sort of peaked with Stalin deporting up to, the, the, you know, the estimates are hard to, to come by, but up to... 
um, 200,000 Crimean Tatars to Uzbekistan and, and elsewhere. Um, and unlike other sort of deportees, for example, in, in the Baltics, they weren't allowed to return until right at the end of the um, of the Soviet Union. So Gorbachev initially blocked their, their return to Crimea and, and the law only really changed in, in 1989. So so what you have now is is just 13% of the population are um are Crimean Tatar, but they're an important population. They've led the resistance, uh, a lot of the resistance post-2014 to the annexation alongside sort of uh, ethnic Ukrainians who, who remained in Crimea. Um, the Tatars stayed there. It's their homeland. They tried to resist um, the Russian an- annexation, the Russian occupation, and they really suffered for it. So, you know, there have been reports um, just in, in the last couple of months, really, that um, so we know that Russia's mobilization has targeted ethnic uh, minorities around uh, Russia itself, because uh, it's politically easier to keep it away from Moscow and, and Saint Petersburg, and you know we've seen it com- uh, concentrate in places like Dagestan. But but in Crimea, there have been reports um, from local um, Tatars from human rights organisations that perhaps ninety percent of the um, of the men who are being drawn up uh, and sent to fight are Crimean Tatars, and they're deliberately scattering them around multiple units so that they couldn't possibly get organised. You know, sort of the danger of of giving your your political enemies weapons, they they wouldn't be able to rise up because uh, you know the Russians know what they're doing and and they're spreading them out. Um, but you know this is kind of one of these forgotten stories, perhaps in 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 how we how we see this conflict and what's going on is that um, you know the, the Ukrainians and the Crimean Tatars we shouldn't pretend that they've had the easiest relationship. They haven't always. Um, there have long been uh, ethnic tensions on on the peninsula, but under Ukrainian rule they were. Uh, working towards um, building up their autonomy, working towards rebuilding um, what they had originally had in Crimea, and all of that was snuffed out by uh, the annexation in 2014. Can I just uh, bring Anna in on this? Something when I was in Ukraine, I was, and, and from speaking to lots of Ukrainians, I've it's really struck me is how well Ukrainians know their own history. Th- th- is this sort of thing some, something that's common knowledge? You know, where where do you learn this, and how has that changed? It, I would ask, you know, in your lifetime from the nineties to, 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 to now, that, you know, how much Ukrainians are taught about their own past, and how do they see it? Um, yeah, you know, it's commonly taught in schools, so it's a. Uh part of our school program uh, we are studying history like things from um, a very young age and uh, uh, me myself for example I was studying history in university as well so more deeply then you are absolutely right we had uh, we had quite um, uh, strange relationships between between Ukrainians and Tatars uh, but it was also a part of propaganda uh, because it's uh, you know when I remember in like early 2000s I was I was small I was a child at the time and uh, I remember how the uh, Tatars come back to Crimea so they were deported and uh, they were trying to come back to Crimea to their motherland and uh, um, it was you know very very strange situation because uh, it was a lot of aggression uh, in, in in media in public like what what are they doing they just uh, taking lands without any laws. So, um, but uh, now, now we see that it was also a part of Russian propaganda. And so, basically, we don't have any problems with Tatars. They leave uh, after the annexation of Crimea from um, th- in uh, 2014. For us now, it's very important to find our roots, to bring them back to light, and. Uh, to uh, to teach our next generations. 
Francis, I know you wanted to talk about um, Vladimir Putin's speech that he gave yesterday. Can you talk through uh, some of the major points you got from it? Certainly. Well, it was a, a significant speech. As I say, I, don't, I think it's important to emphasise that this was scheduled. This isn't a, a new one. Uh, we've had some where he's, of course, made uh, speeches off the cuff and, and we've all had to react accordingly, but we knew this one was coming. It was a long speech. He described the Ukrainian crisis as part of, quote, tectonic changes in the world order that have been going on for several years now. We are facing a historic milestone. Ahead of us is possibly the most dangerous, unpredictable and at the same time crucial decade since the end of the Second World War. He then dismissed accusations that Russia would use a tactical nuclear weapon, uh, calling it a fuss, and blamed the UK for initiating provocations. He accused the former Prime Minister of the UK, Liz Truss, of having publicly threatened Russia with a nuclear attack when she was Prime Minister. I'm not quite sure what he was referring to there, and I also find it rather strange when he was the one that first, of course, started sabre-rattling and, and saying that they had no fear uh, of using Satan too, which, of course, is the weapon they're developing at the moment. So quite a um, bizarre remark. But anyway, nonetheless, the most interesting thing about this speech is is the manner in which it was designed clearly not to appeal to a domestic audience, but to appeal to an international one. It seemed to be aimed, I would say, at winning over political conservatives, uh, in inverted commas, abroad rather than his own citizens. Talked about Russia's battle being with Western elites. Um, obviously, he's trying to capitalise on the political divisions in the United States. We've talked about also within Europe as well, whether that be countries like Italy, like France, less so in Britain. But there is still a strand of thinking in Britain that perhaps might be seen as as more um, pro-peace, you know, in the sense of, of giving uh, Russia uh, territories in, in exchange for um, for stability in the in the energy markets, for instance. And uh, he, he talked about and, and to just give you a sense of what he. He's appealing to here. He says there are at least two Wests. One West is a traditional, mainly Christian values of which the Russians feel kinship. There's another West, aggressive, cosmopolitan, crucial word there, neo-colonial, another crucial word, I would say, acting as the weapon of the neoliberal, another key buzzword there, elite, and trying to impose its pretty strange values on the rest of the world. So, as I say, you hear that language and it's pitching it very, very much to a sort of populist, anti-Western elite kind of message, which no doubt will resonate with some in Europe and in the United States. I think it's... um, unlikely that it will work. But nonetheless, I think its pitching is significant. Of course, the colonial angle is also designed to appeal to the uh, Southern Hemisphere. And I've talked in the length uh, in the past about how Russia is trying to pitch itself as the anti-Western, anti-colonialist power alongside China. That's their central message has been that, you know, if you don't want to go the Western route, these these former empires that once occupied you, then come with us. We'll support you financially and everything else with, through the Belt, Belt, and, uh, Belt and Road Initiative in, in the China example. And just to conclude on what he was saying on that uh, in that speech, he ended by saying he considered President Xi to be a, quote, close friend and said that Russia's trade with China has been rising. Now, I can imagine that in China there was a little bit of cringing around that because they have trying, as we were speaking about at length yesterday, trying to stay out of this and being seen too closely as being uh, Russia's uh, key ally. But as I say, he is uh, uncertainly trying to pitch this as as an example in which uh, China and and Russia are, are still very much tied at the hip. 
Thank you, Francis. I, I would say to all of our listeners, we did talk about this at length yesterday with our China correspondent, Sophia Yan. So if you want to hear more about uh, Russia's relationship with China and, and China's relationship with Russia and what the Chinese, Chinese leadership may be thinking, uh, do do um, do listen to yesterday's episode. We are very unfortunately coming to the end of our time together today. So can I just go to our guests for your final thoughts? Uh, Dan Kapoor, can I come to you first? Of course, yes. Yeah. So um spoke to Francis about this earlier and, you know, we wanted to, to discuss this, which is, um, uh, listeners may have seen the Polish movement move to demolish four Red Army monuments um, scattered throughout Poland. Now, this is, um, it does date back uh, some time. The law that, um, the law behind this was actually um, brought in in 2017. Um, and there have been previous monuments that have been demolished in Poland, previous um, Red Army and Soviet monuments. But we've also seen this spreading to other countries. So in the Baltics in particular, they've accelerated their demolition of monuments. Um, Riga, there's a particularly large um, Second World War memorial that uh, was demolished uh, in recent weeks. Now, in Poland, there is a, a special case, which is that Piers, the, the Law and Justice, the ruling party, um, part of their uh, ideology, part of their beliefs is that um, at the end of the Cold War, when um, Poland was democratized after 1989, there wasn't sufficient effort to clear out uh, communists and former communists from uh, the civil service, from, from the public sector. Um, and this kind of feeds into that, this idea that these a lot of these memorials are still standing. It's also important to say that there are exceptions. So um, uh, memorials that are in cemeteries, for example, won't be touched. Um, so, for example, the huge um, cemetery of uh, Red Army soldiers in in uh, Warsaw won't, won't be demolished. Um, but it does bring up this kind of interesting and this difficult uh, question that, you know, we faced before in, in previous circumstances, but is really kind of being brought to the fore by, by um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You know, how to deal with, these, with this history. Um, you know, in Poland's case, uh, the Red Army, uh, hundreds of thousands of, of Red Army soldiers did die on Polish soil and they were fighting um, Nazi Germany, but at the same time in Poland, they're not associated with liberation at all. Um, the uh, the head of the Institute of National Remembrance, uh, Karol Nowrowski in, in Poland, uh, said, you know, this is a monument to disgrace, a monument of contempt of the winners over the victims, um, and said that the Soviets did not bring liberation, they brought another captivity. They were capturing Poland and treating it as booty. Um, and it is this kind of very difficult um, sort of debate that, that, you know, has to happen, but, but you see a lot of across Eastern Europe. And I think that in Ukraine, this will be a, an even harder sort of conversation to have because, you know, how, how do you see the USSR there? Because it ultimately, you know, was a, a, a Russian project and a, and a Soviet and, you know, led to the domination of Ukraine. And uh, you had the Hlodomor and, and genocides, but then you also had 1.6 million uh, Ukrainian men and women who died fighting in the Red Army. And how do you commemorate them properly? without then also, well, celebrating the horrors of the Soviet Union. So a very difficult question uh, that I think we'll probably come back to again and again. Very good. Um, Anna Fertzen, thank you so much uh, for your time today. I'm just wondering if you'd like to sum up some of your thoughts, uh, leave leave our listeners with, with what's on your mind as you go into the weekend. I just want to tell you all that this is probably will be the uh, hardest autumn and winter for for Europe uh, for for the past, I don't know, 70 years. And uh, this is the uh, time when we should show our unity and resilience and stay strong and stay together because um, basically we have a common enemy. Just uh, He decided to, to kill us as well. It's our con- common enemy and we have to stay strong and to, to fight together. 
Thank you, Anna, for all of your time today and for talking us through some of the uh, some of your day-to-day life in Kiev under the blackouts. Uh, Francis Turnley, can I come to you for the very final thoughts of this week? Thank you, David. I just wanted to draw attention to one final remark, which I thought was very interesting in Putin's speech. He said, and I'll quote it in full, it's no coincidence that the West says that its culture should be recognised as universal. That's how they behave. And they insist through their policy that everyone accept these values unconditionally. I think this is an inversion of an argument that dictators encapsulate in some way the different values of any given society, that certain countries want to be governed by dictators because it speaks to their culture and thus anything that is opposed to that is in some way trying to impose its values on on another system. And I think that may have been true once when people weren't aware of, of alternatives in the age of absolute monarchs, for instance, that we were talking about earlier. But ultimately, that's not the case in the globalised world today, where you see that the idea of, of freedom has resonance everywhere, really, um, where people can see that it works, you know, and, and uh, if people weren't drawn to those values in a universal sense, you wouldn't need an FSB or a secret police to keep people in check, right? You, if, if, you, if, if, if Putin's power was rooted in the fact that people wanted him there because that's culturally what they wanted, then you wouldn't need to have these organs of, of state terror. So ultimately, if, if dictators were confident that their role encapsulates their people's culture, then why don't they feel confident enough to offer free elections? It's because I think they know the answer that the majority of people in the modern age, when given the choice between having more freedom over their lives or less, will always be drawn to the former. That's not Western values imposing themselves. That's just human nature. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast by The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can also listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, do leave a review as it helps others find the show. To our listeners on YouTube, for reasons beyond our control, there's sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you do want to hear an episode as soon as possible, it's available on your podcast apps. Please search for Ukraine The Latest on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your preferred app. Check out the Ukraine page on the Telegraph website. As ever, you can get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Madeline Drury and on Twitter, Claire Hubble.